Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. The first two seasons of this podcast explored the trial of Robert Durst, who was convicted in 2021 of the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. This bonus fifth season of Jury Duty is a special deep dive back into that case. We have secured a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. We will present our conversations with John by tracking his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. Today, we begin our conversation with Prosecutor Lewin about that journey. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I first met Deputy District Attorney John Lewin a little over three years ago as we began covering the Robert Durst trial for our website, crimestory.com. On initial impression, Lewin can seem more like a police detective than a prosecutor. Specifically, his buzz haircut and his just-the-facts persona seem to fit the mold of fictional Los Angeles detective Sergeant Joe Friday from the hit 1960s television series, Dragnet. But after spending just a bit of time observing John Lewin in court, it became clear that the Joe Friday persona actually masked an acerbic but self-deprecating wit, a strategically employed temper, and an patience for dishonesty and ignorance. Lewin's relentless pursuit of Durst for the better part of a decade came to remind me of another fictional character, Porfiry Petrovich, the driving force behind the murder investigation in Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and the chief tormentor of the murderer and protagonist of that novel, Rodion Raskolnikov. So, after Robert Durst died early this year, I started talking to John about conducting an unprecedented and exclusive series of interviews to cover the entire journey in his investigation of Robert Durst, from its very beginnings to its end with the death of Durst on January 10th, 2022. And on February 9th of this year, we began a series of what became 17 conversations, all conducted by phone during Lewin's non-working hours, usually while he was walking or hiking, sometimes with and sometimes without his beloved dogs. The last of these interviews was conducted just last Thursday, July 28th, 2022. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the audio is sometimes not optimal. If there are moments when the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. And so with that preamble, we begin our conversation with Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney and lead prosecutor of the team that secured a conviction of Robert Durst for murder, John Lewin, by getting to know a bit about his personal history and how he became a prosecutor. John Lewin, thank you for joining us. Sure. John, would you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what inspired you to want to become an attorney and specifically a prosecutor, and a little bit about that journey? So I grew up in Southern California until I was 10 years old. My parents 
have a number of marriages between them, and they ended up getting divorced, and I ended up moving with my younger brother, Jeff, who's 13 months younger than I am, and also a prosecutor. We ended up moving with my mom and my stepdad to Iowa when I was 10, then eventually moved to Seattle when I was 14, and then I started college at the University of Washington. So when I graduated from high school, and then I transferred down to UCI to Irvine. After my freshman year, I had to actually end up taking a year off in between, and I worked as a dialysis technician. And back then, my plan was that my dad is a nephrologist, and I wanted to be a doctor. And the only problem with wanting to be a doctor is that I'm absolutely terrible at math, never got past geometry. So most people get weeded out of becoming doctors and going to medical school in organic chemistry or in, you know, calculus. I literally took an introductory to chemistry class at Irvine at UCI, which didn't even give you credit. And I think I got a C minus. So that pushed me out of medicine. I realized it just wasn't going to happen. And I'd always been interested when I was a little kid. I was interested, you know, in I was one of those kids that liked to argue. And, you know, people will always say it's really not very true, but people will say, oh, you know, you like to argue a lot. You should be a lawyer. And I don't really know if that's even a, a skill set that even matters or translates. But I ended up deciding, went to college, finished up, ended up doing much better once I got out of the pre med stuff. I majored in something called social ecology at UCI. And we were a top three nationally uh, recognized program. The reason we were a top three nationally recognized program is because at that time, maybe still, there were only three programs in social ecology in the country. So when you graduate with a degree in social ecology, and my emphasis was on criminology, basically you better go to graduate school or law school because you're really not equipped to get any kind of job. So I ended up taking the LSAT, and I ended up uh, doing much better than expected. And I got into, at that time, a, a really good law school, Hastings, in San Francisco. When I applied and was accepted, we were a top 20 law school. By the time I left, we were like number 50. I don't know if there's a correlation between me going there and the decline of the school, but the evidence uh, would certainly suggest that's what happened. So when I got out of law school, in 1991, I decided in the midst of law school that I wanted to be a prosecutor. And the reason that I wanted to be a prosecutor is that I ended up clerking my second year at Alameda County, a district attorney's office. And at first, I didn't think it was going to be for me for a variety of complicated reasons. I worked as a law clerk my second year of law school in Alameda County. And it's pretty funny and so different than how things are today. So Alameda County, which is Oakland, they, they only hired people from the Bay Area Law School. So they would go to Hastings, Davis, Stanford, University of San Francisco, and Golden Gate Law School. I think those were the only, in Berkeley, those were the only law schools that they hired from. They took like 10 or 11 clerks a year into their summer program, and then those individuals would end up working for the summer, and they would, if they did okay, they would get hired. So I ended up, my first year of law school, I got a job working for a private firm. And it was one of the best things that I ever did because I hated it. 
and I can still remember the feeling of getting into that office building and going up the elevator and just the dread in my stomach of, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go work today and build time. I hate it. And that's a really valuable experience to have when eventually you're going to end up taking a job that pays far less than you can make in a private firm. And I never forgot that. So I never had any regret. So my second year, I ended up applying to be a prosecutor and I wanted to work in Alameda County. So at the time, Alameda County, when they would interview, they would, it's such a different time, they would ask you for your best joke during uh, the interview process. It would never happen today. And I ended up interviewing, and when it was done, I sent them a top ten list, like Letterman, of why they had to hire me, which I came across recently. If someone sent this today, they would be absolutely gone. But I ended up getting hired there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next part of today's conversation, John Lewin explains the experience in the Alameda, California prosecutor's office that almost led him away from becoming a prosecutor. And so I started Alameda County, very excited. And I want to say I've been a prosecutor many, many years, and there were, I know, many people in Alameda County, and it's a a good office. But I ended up having a very bad experience there. And the experience that I had was that I was assigned to prosecute a teacher. She was a special ed teacher, and she had been caught with a gun in her car. And it was a very strange case. It was one of the first things I was assigned to do that summer. And I was working with what's called a tap attorney. And these were lawyers who worked for big law firms. And they, this guy had been, he was at Wilson Sansini, I still remember, a big firm in the Bay Area, a high-tech firm. And he was probably a fourth or fifth-year associate and his firm would loan him out to a DA's office for six months to get trials. So he was three-quarters of the way done. He'd done four trials. He wanted six. And I was assigned to do this case with him. And as soon as I got the case, it just didn't add up for me. And the facts were this. It was a teacher in her mid-50s who was on the freeway getting off the off-ramp early on a Sunday morning. And she had been hit from behind at high speed by a car getting off the freeway. She was driving her boyfriend's Chevy Blazer. He was an electrician. He worked for PG&E, I remember. And he was in his 50s. Neither one had any criminal record. She was seriously injured. And when the paramedics came, she ends up telling them she needs to speak to the police officer. And the police officer, they get the CHP guy, and she tells him there's a gun in the car. So the officer recovers the gun, and she ends up being charged with having a loaded and concealed firearm in the car. Now, the car was registered to her boyfriend, and the gun was a World War II, was a German Luger. Very unusual gun to have. And so right off the top, the case just didn't seem like it made sense to me. And I became very disillusioned because 
at the time, the guy I was working with, he just wanted the trial. The defense attorney, she had a public defender, was really excited about the case because she thought that she had a winner. And I'm looking at it going, something isn't right here. So I end up working on the case, and as we're picking the jury, I went back to my supervisor at the time. This is a guy who back then probably had 10 years in. I said to him that I'm not comfortable prosecuting this case. It doesn't make sense to me. And he was very, very rude to me. He basically said, no, I guess in your, you know, two weeks working as a law clerk, you know more than we do. Very, very arrogant. Very nasty. And my response was not good either because my thing was I responded to his response by basically saying that I don't want to be a prosecutor. I'll finish up the summer, but this is not for me. So it turned out, by the way, that I stopped working on the case, but I still watched the trial. And the evidence that came out was that this couple had gone camping in gold country, and there had been a freak weather storm there, a rainstorm, and it was all clay soil. And if the soil got wet, even with a four-wheel drive, you were stuck. So they had all these records of these rains, this rainstorm that had happened. So they'd gone out there, and the boyfriend liked to target shoot, and he brought a bunch of guns out there, and they were in the car. The teacher had no idea. she They weren't her guns. So when the rain came in, they start throwing stuff back in the car. They get home very late. He unloads the car. He misses one of the guns. And in the morning, she goes out to get coffee. She gets hit from behind. It was a Chevy Blazer, and the gun had fallen in a in a compartment under the rear seat. I, I'm a car guy, and I knew where it was, and the gun had fallen forward. So that was the testimony that came out, and the jury took about 10 minutes, and they acquitted her. The judge called it the nun with the gun case. But I was so disheartened by the experience that I decided I didn't want to be a prosecutor, and I told them that. And so I finished up the summer. I ended up my third year, I still worked for the DA's office for their juvenile division. But unfortunately, even though by then I had changed my mind, I was pretty much blackballed from that office because of what had happened. So I end up graduating in 1991, right at the beginning of the recession. And I didn't even want to be a lawyer at that time. I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in fact, I was so not into law school. When I was in law school, I basically would go to class the first day, and I would then come in for my final. I only attended law school for four classes my entire four years. I went to criminal law my first year, evidence, criminal procedure, and constitutional law. The other classes, I came in the first day and left and came in for the final. And at Hastings at that time, they didn't fail. So I ended up graduating. I think I was in the bottom 20% of my class. And my final semester, I ended up taking a community property class. And back then, the rule was you never took a class with a visiting professor, but I couldn't get into the class I wanted. And I ended up taking a class from a professor who was retired from the University of Washington. He was probably in his 80s then. He was so old that his wife was a Ninth Circuit justice, and their son, either at that time or shortly thereafter, also was on the Ninth Circuit. So I took this professor, Professor Fletcher, for community property. I show up the first day. That's it. So when I show up for the final, the only test in the class, 
not only did I not know any of the answers, I didn't even understand the question. The questions were like three pages long. It was like an accounting exam. I had no clue, no idea, didn't know anything. So I basically just wrote a bunch of gibberish that no one could have understood in terrible handwriting. And I'm now worried about passing. I go into the professor's office hours, and he doesn't recognize me because it only showed up twice. And at one point, he says to me, a young man, are you concerned that you failed my class? And I say, gosh, actually, professor, I am. He says, I've been teaching law school for 40 years. I've never failed a student, and I've only ever given one D. And that person had no idea what class they were in. The grades come out, and I get the second D that he's ever given. So I get out of law school. I graduate. By the way, I was supposed to write part of the requirements for graduating is that you write a long paper. And for some reason, I never wrote it, and they never realized I didn't write it. So I still have a dream every once in a while that I'm called back and told that I didn't actually graduate. I'm not a lawyer. So I get out. I don't want to be a lawyer, but I decide I'm going to take the bar anyway. I didn't like studying for the bar, didn't like the essay exams. I only liked studying for the multi-state. So I'd spend two or three hours a day on the multi-state exam. And I got really good at it and ended up taking the bar. My essays were just, you couldn't even read them, so there's no way I could have passed them. But I think I did very well in the multi-state and ended up passing the bar. Unfortunately, that combines with the recession. And so I graduated in 1991, and I want to get a job. Now I've decided I do want to be a DA. But there are no jobs, and the few jobs that they have, every time I would get down to the finals, I always interviewed well, I would have to explain not that I didn't get an offer in Alameda County, but that I told them I did not want to be a prosecutor, and you could see the trap door open up and I wouldn't be hired. So, meantime, I was working as a dialysis technician between 60 and 80 hours a week and making more money doing that than I would have made as a beginning prosecutor, but obviously there's not any future in it. I continued to apply for DA jobs, and I could never get them. Meantime, my girlfriend and then wife had started medical school. And finally, when I couldn't get hired anywhere, I tried to volunteer. I probably hit rock bottom when, in 1993, I applied to San Mateo County, where we were living, right next to near where my wife went to medical school. And they turned me down for volunteering. It was very demoralizing. So after that, I ended up applying for a city attorney position in Anaheim, and I didn't get the job, but they agreed to let me volunteer. What changed your mind between Alameda and going to work in Orange County? So what changed my mind was that I realized that that was a bad situation. It was one case, one person that I worked for that was not the best supervisor, and that my response of, I don't want to be a prosecutor, was immature. And I realized that I never wanted to be a defense attorney. So to me, there are those people that will say, you know, I can be on either side. I'm an advocate. That's not me. I want to be on the side that's right. And by right, I'm not saying that defense attorneys don't do a very important job and a very important service. But if you talk to any criminal defense attorney, And you ask them, hey, so do you think your job is to make sure that the jury 
ends up coming to the conclusion accurately and whatever happened, they're going to tell you no because 99% of the time their clients are guilty. Most of them will admit to that to you. They might say they're overcharged. They might say the police made this mistake. But in essence, the problem with being a defense attorney is that you have to make arguments that are in the interest of your clients that you don't necessarily believe in. And that was never me. I don't want to make those arguments. When I've had cases that didn't add up, I dismissed them. You can't be a defense attorney and go, gosh, you know what? It turns out you killed that little boy, so I don't want to defend you. So I ended up realizing that this was probably the best place for me to be that combined the idea of being a trial lawyer with getting to make arguments that I believed in. I never wanted to make an argument. I still don't make them. I don't make arguments I don't believe in. That's the great thing about being a prosecutor. If I don't have the case and it's not there, then I move on to the next one. So I would live with my dad in Orange County and my stepmom. I would work Monday through Thursday, and then I would fly home on Thursday night, work dialysis, double shifts Friday and Saturday, see my wife, and then fly back again. I would do that every two weeks. I worked there for about five months, and then they had uh, openings in San Mateo County. I applied, but did not get hired. But they did agree to let me volunteer at this time. So I spent another five months in San Mateo County. Turned out to be a very unpleasant experience. I did very well there. I won all my cases, but they wouldn't hire me. And in a lot of ways, they kind of led me on. They wanted me to continue to volunteer there, but I don't think they ever had any intention of ever hiring me. So eventually, I end up applying after five months, and I get the job in Los Angeles, although a couple of people who I won't name tried to convince me to stay in San Mateo County. They really were going to let me, I guess, volunteer forever, not pay me. They wouldn't guarantee. They told me I could have the next job, but when I asked that it be put in writing, they wouldn't do it. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to Los Angeles, and I started as a DA in August of 1993. I was fortunate in that by the time I started with L.A., I had already done, I think, 10 or 12 trials between Anaheim and San Mateo. So I actually, you know, was a reasonably experienced young trial lawyer. So I had already made my mistakes. I already knew, you know, what I wanted to do. And so I was originally assigned to what we call our Metro Florence Firestone Court, where I did preliminary hearings. I did that for about four months. And then I got transferred downtown to do felony trials. I did felony trials for another six or eight months, something like that. And then I went to juvenile in 1995 to Inglewood. I was there 15 months. I had an extra long stint. And so I ended up, when I got out of there, I got sent back to the same central trials team downtown. I then transferred to Torrance in 1996. When I was in Torrance, I developed an interest in circumstantial cases. I always liked them. And my first case in Torrance involved a bunch of robberies. And the lead investigative officer in the case, it was multi-jurisdictional, was a Redondo Beach officer. And there had been a Redondo Beach case from the Galleria that I had remembered from a couple of years prior of a woman who had disappeared. And they had found her body. She was at the Galleria. They found her body in the trunk of a car. And I ended up asking the detective I was working with, hey, do you know anything about this case? It was a detective named Rich Sigler. And Rich said, yeah, it's my case. And I said, it was the husband, right? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it was the husband. And I said, was he ever prosecuted? And he said, no, you know, I took it to your major crimes division, but they weren't interested in the case. So I got permission from my head deputy at the time, 
who's now a judge, Lauren Weiss, Bernstein, and I was allowed to work this case on my off time. So I spent the next year working on this case, and that work ended up leading to a wiretap. And when you have a wiretap, the district attorney has to sign off on it. So they submit it for a wiretap, and they find out, here's this grade two on the case. And the next thing I know, I get called into my assistant head deputy's office, and I'm told that major crimes has taken my case. So that was a guy named Jeff Smink, who was an engineer at TRW. And what had happened with him was that he had been married to his first wife, and the marriage wasn't going well. They had a couple of kids. And one day, she goes through his briefcase, and she finds literally a to-do list planning her murder. He's an engineer. He's written everything out in intricate detail down to the point of call 911 and sound uh, panicked in your voice. So she basically says to him, I'll tell you what, we're going to get divorced and you're going to give me everything. And if you don't like it. So he has this divorce where he loses everything. He remarries a second woman. He is now 10 years later about to finish paying off the first divorce. And his second marriage isn't going well. And that is when that wife was found strangled in the trunk of her car. And the story was that she had gone to the Galleria and been kidnapped by gang members. But it didn't make a whole lot of sense. She was covered. He had killed her at home. He had strangled her. And he had made the mistake of he didn't put shoes on her. So she had socks and no shoes, and her socks were clean. I worked on that case. And I lost it. Major crimes took my case right as they were doing the wiretap. And in the middle of this wiretap, they intercept a call, and they pull him over, and he shoots himself in the head. So after that, I started having an interest in these circumstantial cases, also around the time of John Benet Ramsey. I became what was called the special trials deputy at Torrance. And that meant that I kind of got to select the cases that I wanted to work on. At the time, there was a young sergeant in Torrance named John New, Torrance Police Department. John New would later become the chief of Torrance PD, and then he would become the chief of our Bureau of Investigation. And he's a very, very good friend of mine. And he had put together, he and one of my very best friends, a detective named Jim Wallace, had put together a list of something like 35 unsolved Torrance murders going back to 1960. And we started basically just going through those cases, and I think we've prosecuted eight, nine of them. Every case that could be prosecuted, we went through, and over the years, we prosecuted. So I started working on those cases. In 2000, when Steve Cooley was elected, they set up what they called a forensic sciences section, and that was the first cold case unit. It was supposed to focus on DNA, and Lisa Kahn was our office DNA expert and the DNA expert in the OJ case, and Lisa brought me in to be the trial lawyer for that team. I didn't really like DNA. I liked my circumstantial cases, but I learned that if I simply had DNA done in those cases, the higher-ups wouldn't really understand it, and I would be allowed then to case. So I joined the cold case unit in 2000, if I remember, and I've been doing exclusively cold cases ever since. In 2004, they got rid of the cold case section, and they basically transferred me to our major crimes division, where I've been ever since. Two other questions. Which prosecutor that you worked for or observed taught you the most about how to develop your craft as a prosecutor? So that's a great question. There are two people in particular, and the person who I learn more from than any other lawyer that I've ever worked with is a guy named Tom Steelman. 
And when I was a volunteer city attorney in Anaheim, Tom was one of the senior guys. Tom had been a police officer in three different cities, a public defender in multiple counties, DAs in different places. Tom's had like 30 jobs. He retired recently. I think he was a Riverside public defender. And what I learned from Tom was really preparing my cases and really knowing the law. So I started kind of my idea was I want to make sure as much as possible that I know more law, more evidence than anybody else in the courtroom. I want to make sure that the other side knows it, that the judge knows it, because when you have a really encyclopedic knowledge, particularly the evidence code, you have the ability to control the room. So I learned that from Tom. I also learned from Tom that I could be myself. I did not have to hide my personality. I could end up being kind of the outrageous person that I probably am today. A lot of offices don't like that. I would never have been a good match in San Mateo County. It's probably why they would have never hired me. Uh, I was just too much for them. But, you know, I think that they didn't really appreciate that maybe, you know, I could bring something to the table. The other person I learned a ton from was a legendary lawyer in our office named Dinko Bozanich. And Dinko has tried a lot of incredible cases in our office. He's a brilliant guy, extremely intense. And Dinko really taught me how to take apart a case. And he was kind enough to really mentor me my first couple of years in the office. So I would say those two guys with a honorable mention to a guy in San Mateo County named Al Serrato, who recently retired as the chief deputy there. And Al is probably the smartest lawyer I ever dealt with and a phenomenal trial lawyer. Completely opposite different style than, than I have, but I learned from those three. And then my last question is this. I know that your wife, Cheryl, is a huge part of your life. How is your marriage and what she does affected what you do as a prosecutor? Well, I think that my wife and I are both very fortunate in that we've always loved what we do. Now, it's gotten more challenging for me more recently, particularly with direction that my office has gone. But I think what my wife and I have been blessed to love what we do. And I think that, you know, being with somebody who is, I think I'm very good at my job. I don't have a lot of skills. I think the few skills I do have are very compatible with what I do in the office. But my wife is literally the best microtious surgeon in the world. So I'm with somebody who's far more talented than I am and far more accomplished. So I think it definitely keeps me humble. I'm pretty much at this stage in life, I kind of refer to myself as a trophy husband. I'm just kind of eye candy for my, for my wife. So, you know, I've been very fortunate. By the way, anybody, this is radio, so if you could see me, you would be laughing. Either I'm extremely arrogant or I'm joking, and I'm actually joking if you saw me. And if you saw my wife, you would understand that I'm not much of a trophy husband. We're still trying to figure out what I bring to the table. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as we discuss John's early involvement in the Robert Durst case, his first conversations with the producers of the HBO documentary The Jinx, and the run-up to the filing of charges against Durst. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>